All right, well, good morning. Take your Bibles, please, and if you would, and turn to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, as we are in a series on the Gospel of Matthew that we have entitled The Good News Kingdom. <clears throat> the Good News Kingdom. And uh, this morning, we come to the place in this Gospel account, this Gospel story, in which Jesus is going to, in a sense, come out of the shadows and into the light. He's going to come from being silent and, and kind of not heard and come out now out loud and, and demonstrate who he is and what he has been sent for. Uh, we've seen last week that there was someone before Jesus came and is going to announce who he is and what he came to do. We see in the last... Uh, Two weeks, we actually talked about John the Baptist, someone who has come and paved the way for who Jesus is. And now, in this chapter, uh, at the end of it, chapter 3, we're coming to a very important <clears throat> demonstration of Jesus' public life, his public ministry. Now he's going to come and actually do and bring to consummation what Jesus has been sent for. Now, as we look at Jesus' baptism this morning, I want to begin by asking you this question. And that question is on the screen, and it's this. Is Jesus your example, or is Jesus your substitute? Okay? And that's what I want to look at this morning. That when we look at the baptism of Jesus, <clears throat> did Jesus just go down into the waters and so to set an example? I never heard that before. Why did Jesus get baptized to set an example? Anyone ever heard that? Um, that's how I kind of grew up is he uh, went down into the waters just to show us what example baptism we should go through. But I also want to ask the question, is there more than that? And obviously the answer is yes, there is more, okay? And we're going to investigate that this morning. But if you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 3. And I'm going to read verses 13 <clears throat> through 17. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, the river, to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, fulfill all righteousness. <clears throat> then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, the heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This morning I want to look at the baptism of Jesus and show you that not only is it the exemplary baptism that we follow, but it also is a picture of what Jesus came to do for us to be our substitute. And as we do that, I want to <clears throat> give you three points this morning that what we find in Jesus' life is a daily reality that you and I will all face. 
And in that daily reality that you and all and I daily face, how do we jump into that? And what is, the battle, what is that daily reality we face? Well, here it is. If you're familiar with Matthew chapter 3 and chapter 4, what, and you can even if you have your Bible, what follows the baptism of Jesus? The temptation, right? And if anyone familiar with that, Jesus is led by who? The Spirit of God to go out into the wilderness. What is that daily reality? Well, it's interesting, in, in all of the Gospels except, well, all the Gospels have the baptism of Jesus account. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the account of the baptism is immediately followed by the, the desert, by the temptation of Jesus. And so Jesus here is in a daily reality, a daily reality that there is a spiritual baptism that is followed by a spiritual battle. There is a voice from heaven in the baptism that is followed by a voice from hell in the wilderness. There is comfort and strength in his baptism, and there is desolation and isolation in the wilderness. In the baptism, there is water, and in the wilderness, there's deserts. In the Jordan River, there is abundance, and in the wilderness, there is scarcity. I think what we're called to see in these two uh, events followed up side by side is to see the stark contrast in what the life of Jesus looked like, in which when we follow Jesus, this is in a sense what our lives will look like too. Imagine for a moment that you, you personally, find yourself that you're in a condition that you are so pleasing to God. Imagine you're doing everything you should be doing as a Christian. You faithfully follow Jesus. You do all of your checklists. You do all of your duties. Everything you look at your life and you could actually say, I am pleasing to God. Most of us probably would say, I've never been there and never could get there, right? But if you could get there, then how would you expect your life to follow? What would your life look like if you could actually get to that place where God looks at you and says, he is pleased with me? See, we know this in our heads, but in the daily experience of our lives, we tend to think this, that the more we act morally, the more that we follow Jesus, and the more we do, the more free from hardships our lives should have. We think that our obedience, in a sense, demands from God a certain way of living, that we should not have to experience trials and tribulations. And yet, it's the exact opposite. We know this cannot be the case because of Jesus. Jesus here is on the mountaintop, if you will, of, of experiences as we're going to see the heavens are open and, and there's a voice of the Father making a declaration upon him and there is this moment of fullness and then immediately there is this battle. And what that means is that there's this daily reality that the more God pours his strength and abundance into your life and into my life, the more conflict that is actually going to ensue in your life. 
Let me repeat that. The more God pours his strength, his spirit, his abundance upon you, the more conflict there will actually be inside of you and outside of you. Tim Keller made this statement. He says, if your life is, and he's going to make the exact opposite statement, he says, if your life is tranquil, it's peaceful, it's comfortable, there is no internal conflict, there's no external conflicts, he says, you are not being led by the Spirit. The daily reality of Jesus is baptism and battle. And the daily experience of ours is being filled with the Spirit and being led into battle. Anyone who offers you a Christianity without pain and conflict is offering you a counterfeit. Anybody who tells you if you've received the baptism of the spirits, then your hard days are behind you. They are lying to you. See, what Jesus' daily experience was is what our daily experience is. That there is baptism that is always accompanied with battle. Now, you're like, might be saying, aren't you a Christian pastor? Shouldn't you make Christianity sound exciting and fun? Like, maybe um, you're online with us, maybe you're even here this morning, and you're a skeptic, and we're glad you're here, we're glad you're watching, and we enjoy skeptics because they make us think better about our own faith, and we love to be with you, and you might be like, you're not selling Christianity very well right now. And... What I want to say is, I'm actually selling you what Christianity is. It's the true story. That there isn't a pie-in-the-sky life for everyone in this world. But what Christianity actually offers you is actually the baptism in the midst of the battle. Without the baptism... You're just left a life on your own, fighting your own issues, doing your own stuff that you can't even come to grips with. And so in a real sense, Christianity is baptism in the midst of battle. So if this is like how Jesus lived, and over the next couple of weeks we're going to unpack together uh, the, the temptations of Jesus and how that relates, but that's just like a big picture of what's going on. But let's look specifically now in just the baptism section here, what we read, 13 through 17, and let's find out two ways that we can actually live in this tension of having baptism in the midst of great battle. Number one, we see in verses 13 through 14, John recognizes his insufficiency. Look in verse 13, it says, And Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. I have a picture for you of uh, the Jordan River. Did any of you ever think the Jordan River looked like that? Yeah. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Like, that's a... Maybe not the exact spot where Jesus was baptized, but it's a picture just north of the Dead Sea, if you're familiar with the the map or geography of Israel. But this is a typical picture of the Jordan River. And John was calling people, as we saw the last couple weeks, to this particular place to be baptized. And now Jesus comes down to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John, verse 13 can you say, but John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? What's John doing? John sees the craziness here. 
John sees what's going on before him. He knows that this man, this Jesus, is the promised one. Jesus is the Messiah. And John is, well, he's just John. He has an important task, but he's not the Messiah. He knows that his life and ministry is to take up the, the mantle of Elijah and to lead the way for the Israel to receive their Messiah. And now this Jesus comes to him and asks him to do what he is doing to others, inviting them to repent and prepare their lives for the coming Messiah through baptism. John's like, this is, this is not how it's supposed to go. This is the opposite. Like, you need to baptize me. And what we see in John here is a sense of unworthiness in John. He recognizes his inadequacy compared to the adequacy and the sufficiency of the man who just asked him to be baptized. We get a little bit more insight into John the Baptist in the Gospel of John where he says this, I baptize with water, but among you, Jesus, is one who stands who you do not know, and he's coming after me, and the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Like, he recognizes who he is in light of who Jesus is, that he can't even untie Jesus' shoes. Or in John chapter 3, a bit later, he makes this famous statement that he must become greater, Jesus, and I must become less. See, what John is doing is what other biblical characters throughout the story of God have felt. That when God shows up in a burning bush to Moses, how does he feel? Inadequate and insufficient to do what God has called him to do. Gideon feels insufficient. Isaiah says, woe is me, I can't do this. Jeremiah says, I'm a young person, I can't go tell Israel what to do. Peter, after Jesus, if you've seen uh, The Chosen, I think they do a really good job, except for it's right on the shore. In the Bible, it's not right on the shore, but that's close enough, right? But you see the the image of of Peter when he brings the fish in that Jesus gives him, and he says, go away from me, Lord. Get away from me, because I am a sinful man. See, what does John teach us in the midst of this battle? He teaches us is that we are unworthy of Christ, and we are inadequate to do his work. We are not sufficient. We, in a sense, are unworthy. And in that unworthiness, most of us become despondent. We become discouraged in our Christianity because we're not worthy to be a child of God. Do any of you ever feel like that? You're unworthy? I want you to know that's a good place to be. That's a good place to be. But what's the problem when we feel this way? Well, what I would say is if I could, you know, like a number line, let's go back to elementary school and you had like your number line taped on your desk, okay? And uh, you have zero and you have like all the negative numbers and you have all your positive numbers. And if zero is like feeling just unworthy to be Jesus' disciple, then what do you do with that unworthiness? Most of us in that brokenness and that unworthiness try to like put on our own clothes and do our own activities and do our own actions to move us from zero to a positive five. 
But in that unworthiness, what ends up happening is when we do all of that, we're not moving forward in our Christianity. And when we're depending on our own strength, our own actions, our own righteousness, it actually moves us to a minus five. Which means you don't stay neutral. When you are in this place of feeling unworthy, how do you deal with it? Ironically, and rightly recognizing our unworthiness, it often leads to further spiritual decay. Instead of glorying in our weakness, we despise it. We hate it. We try harder and harder to overcome it and to make something of ourselves. So it leads to further burnout and desolation in our hearts. Have you been there? If we're honest, we've all been there. We hate our weaknesses. We don't want people to know our weaknesses. We, we, and we're going to keep using this imagery over the next several months together, so I'm going to even keep using it. Now, this imagery of the iceberg is, is like, you can know the 10% of me that's above the water, and you can see some of the weaknesses there, but that 90% of the iceberg that is below the water, you will not see. I will do everything to cover it up. And yet, what does Paul say in 2 Corinthians? I have a screen or a passage for you from 2 Corinthians chapter 11 um, that's, you know, I'm going to just say this. Most of us know that second passage, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, that says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Why? So that Christ's power may rest on me. Like, and we'll talk about that in a second, but look at what he says a few verses earlier. He says this, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And I think for most of us, it's, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in the things that show my greatness. See, being in a place of weakness and being in a place of unworthiness is where God wants you to be. But then the question is, is what are you going to do in that weakness? Are you going to try in all of your own strength to put on your own muscles to do your own activities that actually leads you further away from Jesus? Or are you going to boast in your weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on you? We must all come face to face with our sinfulness so that we will rest entirely on Jesus and his work then all of our brokenness, all of our inadequacies will be a means by which Christ's power will be demonstrated and, and thrown out of our lives to be seen by others. Our insufficiencies should force us to turn to Christ and His Spirit for the power to accomplish the things God has for us to accomplish. So the question is, is how do you know what you're resting in when you feel your unworthiness? Does that make sense? Like, how do you know where you're at? Let me just ask you this. Let's just, what is an example? What is, a, what is when you lead to go minus five and you depend on your own strength, how do you know you're doing that? Any questions? Anyone, anyone have any feedback for me? How do other people know they're doing that? That way you don't have to confess your own sins. They get busier and they try harder. 
Do you know that the best way to escape God is to use God? I don't know if you caught that. The best way to avoid God is by using God. Like, be so busy for God that you don't, even, you don't have to stop and think and say, do I actually have a relationship with this person? Like, you might be able to see that in your own personal close relationships with people that you don't really know them, but you're with them all the time, and you're just so busy, but you don't really have a deep relationship, so you actually, rather than get to know that person intimately and can just sit there and do nothing, you have to be busy, busy, busy. One way I would encourage you to stop and ask this, too, is how often do you communicate with God? How often are you praying? And this isn't in the sense of like Martin Luther three-hour prayers at four in the morning till seven in the morning. Does that make sense? I'm just saying like in your daily life, is there this ongoing dialogue with God? Because in that ongoing dialogue with God, it is like I need help. I need you. I need to depend on you. I don't know what to do in this situation. My kids are driving me nuts. I don't know what to do. My wife is saying this. I don't know what to do. I am in my job. I don't know what to do. And I think if we're honest, most of the time we just know what button we need to do and we just start doing it and we start going the wrong way. The real issue is, is there a dependence upon God? A second way I would encourage you to start maybe thinking through this, which way you're leading and in your unworthiness, is it taking you even further away from God or is it leading you to God, is are you able to communicate your weaknesses with other people? Do the people who know you most actually know you? See, I don't think... If you're not able to know and, and embrace your brokenness and your weakness and to be known by others, I think it's going to be really hard for God to take your weaknesses and have his glory shine through them. So church, it's good to be like John. When we're in that daily battle of baptism into battle, how do we live in that tension? We come to a place of we are unworthy we come to a place of, of my favorite movie when I was in high school, okay? We're not worthy. That's, that is what we are. We are not worthy to put on the robes of Jesus, to, to be followers of Jesus, to do Jesus' work. And that is a good place to be. But that can lead to very different outcomes, so we need to, in this baptism to battle struggle of our daily life, number one, depends upon Jesus to fill us, to use our weaknesses for his glory. But then we see something also in Jesus. As we've looked at John and seen a, an element of how we deal with baptism into battle, we now see something in Jesus I think gives us another hint, another clue in how to live in the midst of this tension. Jesus tells John in uh, verse 15, I believe it is, if you take your Bibles in verse 15, he says, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. 
What is happening in this particular phrase? Jesus states that it has to happen this way, John. I know you think it's weird. I know you think it's backwards. I know you think I should be baptizing you, but this is how it has to be for now. Okay, that word now is really important. For now, this is how it's going to be. Later, it's going to be different. And Jesus states, for now it has to happen this way so that all righteousness might be fulfilled. Okay, now there's a lot of different ways that commentators and Bible interpreters take this phrase that all righteousness will be fulfilled. But if I could like sum up all of them and just give you a common ground of what it means, it means this, is that this has to happen this way. I have to go into the water and you have to baptize me because that is how the righteousness of the kingdom of God is coming to this earth. You want the kingdom of God to come? You need to baptize me, John. I came to bring the rule and reign of God back to this earth, and I have to go into the waters to do that. And so the righteousness that both Jesus and John are talking about is the righteousness of God's kingdom, the state of affairs where man is now right with God, man is now right with man, and man is now right with themselves, where all of these relationships are now under the rule and reign of God and and righteousness and love and peace and joy fill the earth. Jesus says, for now it has to be this way, John. For now. But why? Why now? Why does Jesus say, now it has to happen this way? Well, let's look at the actual events. In this baptism event, there's different ways you can break it up, but I'm going to break it up this way. There's a divine act and a divine speech. There's an action and there's a speech. Let's look, first of all, at the action. What is the action? Look in verse uh, 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. See, Baptists are right, okay? There, we said it. At that moment, that's a joke, okay? Someone laughed, thankfully, okay? I'm not going to spend why we believe in immersion, but that's one reason, okay? Um, What was I saying? As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, And at that moment, the heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending upon him. And the NIV says, alighting on him. That's almost like a King James word. Okay? And coming upon him. What's the action? First of all, the heavens open. The heavens open. I wish I could give you a picture of what that looked like. But the imagery in the Old Testament of the heavens open is is an apocalypse. It's it's an image of what's going to happen on the last days. The heavens are going to be shaken. The heavens are going to be torn open. Or as Isaiah chapter 64, verse 1, because I just should have thought ahead of time, but... If you want to turn there with me, Isaiah 64 is a a passage that speaks to this end time event as well, that speaks to the heavens being torn open. It says this, oh, that you would rend the heavens, and anyone know the next phrase? And come down. Okay, what's happening? 
The ravens are being rent. They're being opened. They're being torn apart. The end days, the last days of of the heavens being opened are now, in a sense, being fulfilled in this baptism. And we should probably think that for a short time, the barrier, the thin fabric that separates the heavens and the earth, the place where God dwells and the place where we dwell, those two realities, we should think that for a moment, those two became one. And that for a moment, that what is going to take place on the new creation in the heavens and the earth become one reality. For a moment, they became so connected that the heavens opened and you could see the Spirit of God descend upon Jesus at his baptism. So in this baptism and battle life that we face on a daily reality. We need to come and see our worthlessness and then come to see that God has empowered you with his spirit. He has torn open the heavens and allowed the spirit of God to leave the heavenlies and now come and dwell upon Jesus. And I know we're getting ahead of the story, but you already know the end of the story. That if you're in Jesus, you're united to Jesus, guess what you also have? The Spirit of God that rent the heavens and came down and descended upon Jesus is now the same Spirit who gives you the power to enjoy the baptism and fight the battle. Acts chapter 10, verses 37 through 38 is a, is, an, is a declaration by the apostles that when Jesus, after he was baptized, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit of God gave him power to do all the healings and all of the uh, exorcisms that he did. And so, in this divine act, God does something miraculous. He unites heaven and earth, and he, he sends the Spirit of God to descend upon Jesus to empower him. To do his mission. But then there's a divine speech. God the Father makes a declaration over Jesus. And the declaration is this. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. So you haven't caught it yet. This is probably the first mention of the Trinity explicit mention of the Trinity. In Scripture, we have the Father making a declaration, the Spirit who is God coming, descending upon the Son of God, and together they are, they're forming the Trinitarian mission of how God is coming to the earth through Jesus. And there is a lot we could say about these verses. I mean, the phrase, this is my Son, we could spend a long time on. Not to mention... The idea of loving and being well-pleased with. But the way I want to unpack this this morning is that to make these two comments. Number one, both of these phrases, this is my son with whom I am well-pleased, come from where, church? Guess where? The Old Testament. They weren't just random things that just showed up. It wasn't like God the Father spoke something brand new. 
Which means when John the Baptist and the people who were there heard this voice of declaration saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased, they already had a bunch of information going on in their heads saying, check, check, check. Does that make sense? And what were they, boxes were they checking? Well, the first Old Testament passage comes from Psalm chapter 2. I have this on the screen for you as well. In Psalm 2, I have a, just two verses of which the whole chapter speaks to um, this idea of this is my son. It says this, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Psalm 2 became this messianic psalm. What I mean by that is like after it was written, the Old Testament people understood that ultimately this psalm would be fulfilled in Jesus, in the Messiah figure. So when God the Father speaks down on Jesus, this is my son, guess what everyone who else heard that understood? This is the messianic figure. This is the king that if you read the rest of the passage in Psalm chapter 2, this is the king that's going to crush all the nations. He's going to bring God's scepter to the world. This son, if you do not kiss the son, you will be punished. In Psalm 2, there's this declaration that the psalmist is saying that one day there is going to be this royal, kingly figure who is going to come and bring righteousness to the earth and destroy all of those who reject him. That, speaking of what Nate talked about last week. But then the second phrase comes from Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1, that says this, Here is my servant's. Whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I am pleased, in whom I delight. And I will put my spirit upon him, and he will bring justice to the nations. So Isaiah chapter 42 is the precursor to this declaration of the Father, of which the Father says, this is my kingly royal son, this is the messianic son from Psalm 2. But he's also the servant from Isaiah 42. You may not be familiar with this, but in Isaiah 42 and following chapters, like Isaiah 42, Isaiah 49, Isaiah 50, and I think most of you might be familiar with Isaiah 53, right? All we like sheep have gone astray, we've all turned away, and God has laid on him the iniquity of all. You heard this. He was despised, rejected. That's... What I'm trying to tell you right now is that these four passages are songs. They were songs that, that Isaiah wrote in his book. And each one of these songs is about the servants. And you get a different glimpse of who this servant is as you trace each one of these four songs. And in the first, this is the very first servant song, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 1. The first thing we find out about this servant is that this is the one in whom I am pleased. And I will put my spirit on him. Isn't that interesting? Now in the baptism, the spirit of God descends upon him and God says, I, this is my servant. 
But you know what else? You know what the last and final song is? It's Isaiah 53. It's the suffering servant. The suffering servant. The one who had to go through crucifixion. The one who actually had to suffer in our place. So, when God the Father makes this declaration upon Jesus, he's saying this is the royal messianic king who is also what? The suffering servant. This is the lion of the tribe of Judah who is going to bring justice to the world. But this is the lamb of God who's going to take away the sin of the world. What he's showing us is that in this public ministry of Jesus, he's not just going to come right now and bring justice. First, he's going to take up his role as the suffering servants. First, what he's going to do is he's going to come and be our substitute. He's going to come and do what we couldn't do. He's going to put himself in our place. He goes into the waters of the Jordan River that he doesn't need, but we need. He goes to the cross that he doesn't deserve, but that we deserve. See, Matthew is picturing Jesus in this baptism as one who is identifying and taking our place. Jesus isn't just our example in this baptism but he is our substitute. He takes our place. He has identified with us. Jesus knows your weaknesses. And we're so stupid, we try to hide them. It's like playing hide and seek with your little kids, right? Ready or not? Are you ready? And what do they all say? We're ready. Okay, like we're, dumb, we're that dumb that we try to hide our weaknesses and, and, and run away from them and try to cover them up rather than acknowledge we're, we are not worthy because of these weaknesses and depend upon the Spirit of God and put our trust in the fact that there is a substitute that makes up for our weaknesses. This is the baptism that John is, is giving to Jesus, that Matthew is recording for us. And so, it's interesting that when we live in this baptism that leads to spiritual battle, we often have expectations of what our life should look like. We have expectations that our life should be easy. And let's be honest, we're all okay with a little trial. Does that make, like, we're all okay, yeah, we must, you know, like, all right, God, it's, the world's not perfect, and there's going to be some trials here, but the more those trials stack up, and the higher they get, and the harder they come at you, in the midst of that spiritual battle, we're tempted to, number one, get mad at God. And you say to God, I deserve a better life. And in that battle, because of your baptism, you think that God does not love you, or that God has abandoned you, or God is not treating you how you think he should be treating you. But there's also another way that we often deal with our battle. 
not only, do, not only do some people get mad at God, but they get mad at themselves. They say, I don't deserve a good life. I don't deserve this because I've not lived up to what I should live up to. So I ask, in the midst of your battle, do you get mad at God or do you get mad at yourself? And what the baptism teaches us, if Jesus is only your example, that weight of that example will crush you. Sure, Jesus is our example, and we try to live up to his example, but if that is all we do is live and try to follow Jesus' example, how many of you follow Jesus' example today? Perfectly. That example is going to what? Come down and crush you. And in that crushing, you're going to get mad at God, or you're going to get mad at yourself. And so, sure, we try to follow Jesus' example, but when we don't live up to his example, he becomes our substitute. And he identifies with you. And he knows your brokenness. He knows your weakness. He knows, as we'll see in the coming weeks, what it's like to be without food for 40 days, which none of us probably ever have ever experienced. So, church, when life goes from baptism to battle, Remember that Jesus identified with you in the waters of baptism. The Spirit of God has come upon us to acknowledge our weaknesses, to delight in those weaknesses, and depend upon Jesus to be our substitute, to be our Savior, so that he can get glory through us, our lives together. Jesus, thank you for this demonstration of obedience, this demonstration of coming and identifying with us, taking up our waters, taking up our cross that you didn't need and that you didn't deserve. Help us not to be crushed by your example, but help us be people who acknowledge our weakness, our our insufficiency, And by the power of your spirit, depend upon you and trust you and see you work power through our lives. We ask this so that we might be a people who display this kingdom, this new rule and reign in our lives together for the sake of those who don't know you yet. And we ask these things in Christ's name.